Vibe Machine Welcome to Undercover's Podcast. My name's Josh Kith, and this series is all about amazing album designers and the art that they have created. And this episode and our next one is with Gail Marowitz, the iconic designer behind Amy Mann, Rico Kasek from The Cars, Aerosmith, Jeff Buckley, Baby Animals, and Savage Garden frontman Darren Hayes, George Clinton, Jonathan Coulton, Ted Leo, Nickelback, Evanescence, the list just goes on. And throughout this episode and the next, we get to dissect a lot of those amazing designs. Now, as always, we start our chat by asking our feature artists how they got started in art and how that led to music. Vibe. Machine. Art wasn't the top of my list. I, I uh, studied guitar since I'm five years old. Uh, the, wow. uh, the Beatles were a huge influence on, on a, my very young life. And, uh, I wanted to be in a band and I played in a band in high school, got into a band in college. We had a little bit of success so that we went on a, like a six city tour of New England, not, you know, Boston, New York, you know, it's kind of cl- close proximity cities. And mm. after that little, after that little tour, I said, I'm out. <laughs> this is not. <laughs> This isn't for me. This, I don't, I don't like, I don't like this life. It wasn't for me. And I thought, well, well, what could, I love music. And that was really always the thing that just moved me. So I thought, well, what, what could I do in music and not be a, a perform, not be in a band, not be a performer. And I, I spent an extraordinary amount of my youth in record stores and I loved looking at the album covers. And mm. I thought that could be fun. I think that would be good. <laughs> I had, it's funny, Josh. I had no art training. I mean, my mom was artistic and, but, but also, but a registered nurse. She was a scientist who happened to be artistic. My dad not had no ability at all. And so <laughs> art never really, it wasn't encouraged. And I think, you know, my parents certainly thought it seemed like a, a, a crazy thing to want to do. And how could you make a living? <laughs> But, you know, you ignore them. You ignore them and uh, you soldier on. And so I so I said, oh, album covers, that's that's what I'm interested in. I mean, the simplest way I can tell you that I got into it was that I had friends who were in bands and bands are interesting. They're sort of their own ecosystem. There's usually mm. there's there's the front person who speaks, you know, to the press and the fans and is that person everybody loves. And then there's, you know, the money person, the guy who makes sure the band, they collect the money at the end of the gig and the band, <laughs> each band member gets paid. And then there's usually, uh, you know, the art guy who does yes. been doing the flyers, did the logo, did that. And so I would always figure out who was the art guy and then say to the art guy, I think I can help you. I think I can help you make this stuff even more of what you want it to be. And that's sort of how it started. So a lot of those projects were, you know, New York City punk bands. Nobody ever got famous. But I started to learn how to deal with musicians and mm. what their visions were. And, and so it was very it was very helpful to just f- sort of learn some some kind of language that I could speak to these band, these bandmates and musicians that they felt comfortable that I wasn't 
you know, taking over their whole project. And I think that served <laughs> me, that served me well. The first kind of real paying design gig that I got was for a convention called the New Music Seminar. And, uh, a friend of, a friend of mine was the kind of creative director, marketing director of that. He called me and I started doing work for them. That person, his name's Jim Levitt. He then got a job as the head of creative at a brand new record label called the Imago Recording Company. Ah. So, yeah. Yeah. So Jim Levitt called me maybe a month into his tenure at Imago and said, if I fire everybody in the art department here, will you come and work for me? So I said, <laughs> sure, because, because I knew, I knew they had, they had Rollins uh, and I, mm. their A&R person, Kate Hyman was someone whose taste in music I really respected. And I loved Jim. And I thought, oh, this, what a great opportunity to yeah. like, have a sol- solid, steady job being paid what I, what I love, you know, what I love to do. It's funny, I haven't heard the baby animals mentioned in a long time. And I do, I want to <laughs> say that I love, I loved Susie DeMarchi. And oh. I thought she was a star. Yes. Um, I, I thought she had absolutely every, Everything you needed in that star quality mode to, to be a success. Mm. I, I thought she was, you know, really great uh, vocalist and just, a, you know, a, the real deal rock and roll girl. But the, la- the label was young. The band, you know, there was and I was young. So it was it was it was a, like a convergence of a lot of difficult things. Like I couldn't stand mm. up for what I knew was right. You know, the label wanted one thing, the band wanted another. It was a very, uh, it's a very typical scenario, I'm sure. If you speak to anybody who's worked, you know, within the label system, it's a struggle. I mean, it's never, yeah, yeah, (laughs) it's never, it was never a slam dunk out of the box type of thing. There's always a lot of process and a lot of voices. And so I really, I loved that band. I really wanted them to, to work, but even I knew the imaging wasn't strong because, you know, it just got so watered down. Everybody wanted a photo of them. And I was like, I get it. She's great looking, but it's kind of, you know, they're more <laughs> vibey than that. You know, it was just very typical, typical, uh, problem from baby animals, which I think was really one of my very first projects. Then Henry. Henry came to the label. Oh, wow. And I loved him. I wasn't really familiar with the Rollins band, but I knew of Henry's spoken stuff and poetry oh. and his written work. Josh, I don't I don't like to kiss and tell, but Henry Rollins is the real deal. Like, what you see right. with Henry is what you get. Like, I, <laughs> he was very proud. When I started working with him, he had just bought a home in, in Hollywood on Franklin Avenue, and he wanted me to come see it. And I said, oh, I would love to. Congratulations. That's really fantastic. And I came to his house on Franklin, and his bedroom was a single mattress on the floor with oh. about a thousand a thousand books surrounding it. <laughs> very, very, very rolling. Yes. Very rolling. Yeah, it was totally, I was like, oh, he is practices what he preaches. He's the real deal. <laughs> so, um, you know, Henry was easy. He, uh, yeah, he knew what he wanted. He wanted something based on his back tattoo and... You know, I was like, well, you, that's perfect. Uh, you know, mm. you can't lose with that. <laughs> and, you know, every, every picture of him that's ever taken is amazing. You know, he's a, he's kind of a can't lose project because he looks amazing. 
because he's got pretty good taste. Mm. Um, so that first album, Search and Destroy, the end of silence with the Search and Destroy logo, that was, yes. that was a real success. That was a real success for me. I think at that point, that first record, everybody was just at the label was kind of afraid of Henry. <laughs> and so whatever, <laughs> if, he, if he liked it, if he liked it, it happened because nobody wanted to, uh, you know, go up against him. Uh, the second album was a little trickier. Wait, he wanted something Wait, very yes. concept. Yeah, very conceptual. So that was that sort of feather. Uh, you know, he's kind of a metaphorical guy. And the mm. label was, they were not happy with that idea. And so we made the label happy and it certainly made me happy by doing a very special package that was in a tin can that looked like a weight that, you know, that, that really was kind of super serving the fans. And that was, mm. a, that was a big success. I'm a huge Rollins fan. I was never a big Black Flag fan and, until later on. Uh-huh. Um, once yeah. I realized the depth of the music and that every album they were trying to incorporate a new style of music that's when i started to go oh, hang on a minute this is far more than what i thought but uh get in the van when i uh, it's a classic for my wife and i we will we will put that on when we're in the car without the kids it's great and, get in the van is great yeah oh and just yeah. listen to that to that spoken word and once you get through that and you've listened to it a few times every single spoken word thing that he does you just you gravitate towards because you know what you're going to get. And like you said, he's, he's the real deal. And he really you know, is. It's actually interesting. You mentioned that, you know, he, he's sort of surrounded by books. And these days when you see photos, he's got a million vinyl records in his house. And I actually ran right. into him in a record store in Sydney about four or five years ago. And he was the sweetest. <laughs> no, that's how you sweetest can, guy. that's how you can always make Henry happy is whenever you see him, you bring him a record, something special. Usually from the fifties, like an okay record or, a ah, or something, that, something really old, like old fifth stacks. He loves stacks. If you brought him oh, any kind would. of stacks release, like that was the way you could make a good impression <laughs> and keep Henry happy. Just bring him some vinyl. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. And I love that you mentioned baby animals right off the, off the bat. We did talk about that before we got started to everyone listening, yep. but. Uh, yeah, Baby Animals, their, their first self-titled album is, is a classic in Australia. And they still tour to this day off the back of that album alone, let alone Shaved and Dangerous and all the other things they've done. You're, you're right about Susie. She is incredible. And they've got a yep. genius songwriter in that band in Dave Leslie as well. Yeah, who, Dave, right. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, right. The guitarist. And he just, he's got yep. it and he has his own studio and it's top set up and he, he just understands the symmetry of music and, and getting to the, the heart of what's needed to be in every song. So, you know, it, it's, it's amazing that you got to work with those guys. And a little bit later on, we're going to talk about another Australian act, Darren Hayes, who is, of course, the sure. singer, singer songwriter for Savage Garden. And you've worked with him on nearly all of his solo releases, I think. So, but wow. I, I, I did want to talk about probably one of, if it's not the most well known, relationship you have with an artist it, it's it's got to be up there which is which is amy man or amy man you've worked with her from the imago days right through to now uh a lot of your work has been nominated for grammys you've won a grammy award with her with, with the art for her and it, it all started with the album whatever if i'm correct is that how that relationship yep. started you are absolutely correct i will say that uh in my t- in my 20s, I was a Till Tuesday fan. 
I loved Voices Carrie and that video. I thought she was a fascinating person looking and the song and all of it. So mm. it was very interesting when she came into the offices at Imago. I was like, oh, that's the girl from Till Tuesday. She's a, <laughs> she's she's got something. She's a good mm. songwriter. You know, I will say this, Josh, in terms of my career or or the things I'm most proud of, I think all roads lead to Amy Mann, whether it's <laughs> the work I've done with her or the people she has introduced me to. Uh, because right. she's introduced me to both Ted Leo and Jonathan Colton. Um, and so, uh, it, it's been a, 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 almost a, more than a 30 year relationship. So she, wow. she came to Imago with the record, whatever, um, which I, uh, musically I thought was just beautiful. It's just, uh, mm. Amy's lyrics speak to me, uh, and, and always have. And so, uh, she was very, she, she absolutely had, uh, ideas. She came, she did the, her, her own typography on that record. And, wow. uh, Anton Corbin, uh, the famous photographer. Yes. He took the photo, he took the photographs because he was an Amy Mann fan. He ah, reached out to, right. he reached out to Amy. So he wanted to take her picture. So wow. it was an amazing photo shoot. Um, just, you know, filled with really beautiful shots and Anton, you know, at the time, Josh, it wasn't like, Oh, let me just shoot you these files. I mean, Anton <laughs> made 11 by 14. We looked at thousands of pages of contact sheets. Then he made 11 by 14 prints. Then we, you know, it wow. was like such a process. Um, but, uh, it, it, you know, it gave us great, great results. And so. From whatever, Amy made the second record just as the label was sort of falling apart. Right. Um, which, which was called I'm With Stupid. That's just what you are. That was kind of a, a, an idea that, that I had. I was like, well, what if we spell it out in the refrigerator magnets? And, yeah. You know, and I was like, oh, I like that idea, and it's not my big fat face. You know, as with each album, if you look at the covers, Amy becomes less and less interested with herself being on the <laughs> on the cover. So... So in the so that first record, they're sort of her full body. You know, she's kind of she is on the cover, but you know, it's not my big fat face. And then for I'm with Stupid, it's the back of her head. And, um, you know, and then it just keeps progressing to where she, you know, she's not even anywhere in, in yeah, the package. The- but um, yeah, exactly. So I'm with Stupid. We had sort of gotten most of the record done and designed when the label was really falling apart and Geffen snatched her up and released that record. Wow. And then what, what, what whatever, a coup at, whatever, a, at a time yeah. for Geffen as well, right? Yeah. yeah. So Geffen, you know, I think they're a great label. I think David Geffen is, you know, he's an interesting character and I think he loves music and all of that. Mm. But the culture at the time at Geffen was really run by the huge successes of like Eminem. So I remember Amy telling me the story that when she went to Geffen to meet with everybody, there was a bit, you know, huge framed photo of like Eminem and some naked girl and sort of like a smell the gloves scenario for Spider Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounded like, 
And, 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 and she was like, I, I don't know, Gail. I, I don't know how this is going to play out. And I was like, oh, well, 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 you know, hopefully they'll make a third record and we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. And sure enough, they did, which was Bachelor number two. Um, so Amy made that record. And we, and, you know, apparently it's a very typical scenario. Uh, you know, artists bring records to labels and labels, they can say, I love it, or they can say, I don't hear a hit or, you know, whatever it is, they'll have an opinion. And let's just say opinions clashed when Amy brought back the number two. <laughs> so, and I, 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 that's really lost in space is my most favorite Amy Mann record, but bachelor number two is a close second. And so nice. bachelor number two, there, so there was a lot of discord between Amy and the label. And I, I'll never forget she calling me in the afternoon, one afternoon and saying, I, uh, I, I, I'm, t- I'm taking every penny that I have and I'm buying this record back from Geffen wow. and we're going to put it, we're going to put it out ourselves. And it was just at the moment where like Chuck D and Public Enemy was doing that. You know, people were starting to say, fuck these record labels. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can't work under this structure. I, I, I'm out. I'm going to figure this out on my own. And Amy was really one of the first, certainly one of the first people out of like hip hop or that really mm. popular music to just say, I'm out. I, I can't, yeah. I can't do this. Uh, you know, I can't get along with these labels. And so bachelor number two design wise is incredibly simplistic because she'd spent every penny she had to buy the masters back. We didn't have any money for artwork. So it was very, so I used all copyright free engraved, ancient engraved engravings. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was, it printed two colors. It was, you know, it did, you know, it was just sort of the most inexpensive kind of package that we could get out there. But, you know, people loved it. People loved the yeah. dodo image. You know, it just people. It's incredible. It, yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it gra- gravitated. That was the first inkling where Amy could see, oh, you know, I, I, I can do this. And now I don't have to mm. listen to all these people telling me they don't hear a hit and to go back and write another song. From that point on, she began her label Super Ego. Um, and the, so the next Lost in Space and Charmer and yes, Mental Illness have all, yes. uh, have all of those have come out on her own label. Wow. Um, and, and, and those records, which I feel design wise and fucking smilers. Those records, I all, I feel like we really, Amy and I had obviously complete artistic control. She is an artist who puts her money where her mouth is because Gary Taxali and Andrea Dejo and Owen Smith are all illustrators who, you know, are worth substantial fees so she's willing you know a lot of artists you tell them what the budget is and how much an illustrator wants and they're like oh well then just put a picture of me on the cover <laughs> um, <laughs> it's true but Amy's it is. not it like is. that it is i mean and i get it I, you know it's yeah. a where i you know honestly it's you know it's an audio medium i mean the visuals now more than ever are, are really important so Yes. Um, so we've been able, Amy and I have been able to have artistic control for these last four or five releases. And she has given me, you know, a budget so that I could go ahead and hire 
people to, you know, make it even more substantial. Charmer was a record that uh, my design partner Ed and I did ourselves. But otherwise, uh, we've, we've used fairly well-known uh, illustrators. And we're in the process of doing vinyl anniversary editions of Bachelor Number Two and Lost in Space. Wow. Uh, because they never, they never came out on LP. So we're, we've rehired Seth, who did, uh, Lost in Space originally to do a gatefold comic strip based on Amy's writing, writing a sort of a biographical thing. And he just delivered it and it's really beautiful. And so, wow. uh, you know, I'm excited about that and, and that I still get to do such great work with, with Amy. So that, She's really been the cornerstone of my career. It's pretty much how my best work gets seen. And, you know, Josh, where she's not Nickelback or, you know, an artist where, <laughs> you know, or Evanescent, you know, where it gets in front of a million to anywhere to 10 million eyeballs. Mm. Uh, the people who do see it are kind of my sweet spot. So. Don't. And um, they're fanatical and. You know, it, it, it speaks volumes to Amy's career, the fact that she's sort of taken it by the reins herself. She wouldn't have had that longevity had she stuck it at Geffen, Geffen. And she knew that. She obviously could see that. Yeah. And she thought, you know yeah. what? I could sell a million records with Geffen and be broke, or I can sell 300,000 yeah, exactly. myself exactly. and, and exactly. buy a house. So, you know, yeah. and, and that, that's house, what it is. Sign, sign, yeah. yeah, sign another artist. Like, you yeah. know, that. It's allowed. She signed uh, Jonathan Colton, who was my right, yes. most recent Grammy nomination. Yes. So yeah, it's it's enabled her. You, you know, you really nailed it. It's like yes, you can sell a million records on a major label and have pretty much not a lot to show for it, or yep. you can sell a hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand if you're lucky. You know, yep. independently on your own, and exactly like you say, buy a house. Yeah, and that's you know? that's what and like you said at that time it was a massive jump. You're in the mid '90s. You've got Pearl Jam are huge. All these bands are huge who themselves would be sitting on these big record labels, going, "What are we doing here? We're making twenty cents for every record we're we're, we're selling, and we're selling exactly thirty million of these things. Why aren't we owning the masters to these where we're making four dollars a record? You know, it just and so for someone like Amy to say, you know what, I'm going to get out of this engine, do it myself. And the fact she's managed to not only, you know, survive but thrive in that is just a testament thrive, to Thrive, yeah. 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 And, you know, some of the album artwork, I mean, I, I've been looking at it over the last week and, you know, a lot of them I've seen, you know, obviously I'm a stupid and, and whatever you see in the record stores. And I'm like you, I – fell in love with album art. I have no artistic ability whatsoever. Um but but I fell in love with, with album art. I've worked in the music industry and you know that's why I started this podcast because I have a I'll send you a photo. I have a house that has a room, a music room I call it uh, a billiard room but I don't play pool. Ripped out the billiard table and put in all vinyl is covering every wall, all framed. Oh, and um, and you know I've got some really rare pieces off Nirvana and stuff through through Robert Fisher and all these amazing people and you know so I've got them framed up there and um you know that's what I fall in love with I walk in that room and I look around I change the vinyl covers and the frames I'm I'm a bit fanatical but you know I love the music but I love the artwork as well it it sets the I tone for the music it just then and, and you know like when I've gone into record stores and I've and I've flicked past Amy Mann I've seen you know, the Forgotten Arm is just one of those, you know, 
amazing covers that just sits out at you. It, it sort of jumps out at you. And, and same with fucking Smilers and, and Charmer and, and even Mental Illness, that sort of the latest one. Um, so, you know, it's, it's an incredible ability that you and her have to have that, that chemistry. And I'm assuming that the chemistry is paramount to you. I mean, the, the way that you talk, you're very contagious with, with your, you know, you've got a real affection for the artist. And I mean, I, I do. I was, I do. I'm curious about a few of the artists that, that you've worked with and a lot of them are quite different in their, in their styles. Um, and I'm, I, I want to try and go in some sort of chrono, chronological order, but I was really interested in how you began working with someone like George Clinton. Cause you've, you've jumped from Amy to, to a few artists, but then you've jumped to George Clinton. He, he sure, just comes across sure. like someone who would be great. To, to meet and to interact with, but would be also a little bit difficult in some ways. But I'm not sure. So if you could, if okay. you could tell me what no, he's no. like. Okay, so I'll t- first of all, I can tell. I, yeah, absolutely. I can tell you. First of all, how it happened is uh, when a, when Amago closed their doors, which was about I, I guess I maybe three three or four years they were open. Mm-hmm. They closed their doors. I was invited to kind of freelance at uh, Sony Music in their art department. And I think that they were kind of just testing me out. And so mm. I thought, oh, okay, you know, I need, I, I need the money. I need a job. So, so I, I started there. And at that time, the art department was quite large. There were you know, 20 art directors and 20 what they called GAs who were graphic artists who actually did the mechanicals. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was really, it was very, now I look back and I think, man, that was the luxury. You know, because I, I do it all myself now. So, um, but anyway, so when you worked for Sony Music, you worked for five labels. You worked for Columbia, you worked for Epic, you worked for Classical, you worked for Legacy. And, uh, there was a fifth, the fifth label, the Polly Anthony ran that I can't, I can't remember the name of. But so you, you, you worked. Music? That's it. 550. Yep. You worked for there 550. Exactly right. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> so, That's okay. So you you could work for any one of those labels, um, nice. and so my career my career trajectory was that I was freelance like just a freelance art director there. I had to come in every day for about six months, and then they hired me full time. And then the the um, they called them design directors. The design director for Columbia Records uh, got a job at Tommy Boy. And right. let me, and may I just say that Tommy Boy was the very first label I ever worked at, because uh, my, wow. my friend Erwin Gorostiza was the uh, creative director there and he brought me on. And so I would see Erwin work on Naughty by Nature and Incredible. Uh, Queen Latifah. Yeah, it was amazing. Wow. But yeah. uh, so anyway, but so Stacey Drummond, who was uh, the design director for Columbia, went to Tommy Boy. And I, you know, I was a little, I had some age on me. I think I was already like 35. A lot of the art directors were young in their 20s. And so they approached me, would I want to be the design director for Columbia Records? So I said, of course, to me, that was the label. You know, that was the label in my mind. But Mm. at the time, before I got that design director gig, you would work for any of those five labels. George Clinton was signed to Epic. And it might have even been Epic 550. He might have been. Uh, I think it is. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. looking at Discogs and it's telling me it is. So you're right. Right. <laughs> right. That project came up and 
you know, what the design director for Epic had to make the assignment. And I had, you know, you would get inklings of what was going on the schedule. And I had sort of put in a put, I was like, I, if that's up for grabs, I would really like to work on that because mm-hmm. I loved parliamentary fuck funkadelic. Yeah. And yeah, I thought amazing. George Clinton, he'd be like a really interesting character to me. He was uh, a delight, showed up, you know, no, it's like, ah, hair, makeup, uh, forget it. No, came in a big dashiki, <laughs> didn't we even nice. want styling, really? Like, he was just totally pro. And, you know, I will tell you, having worked with somebody like George Clinton or Bette Midler or, or, or uh, James Taylor, you know, you don't have... You honestly, you don't have 60 year careers if you're not a decent person who respects other people, shows up on time, you know. Yep. So I I really, I really believe that. And so George, you know, he's beloved by pretty much everybody. It it was a, it was a one time, was a one time record. You know, it was, I think it was a one off. He never came back to the label again. Um, I hope they made money off of it. I, I loved it because I got to do that Uncle Sam ripoff of a poster with George that said, George wants you instead of amazing. Uncle Sam. Amazing. You. <laughs> yeah. It was a blast. And that's, that's, um, that's a famous, that's a famous image in itself. I mean, you, you still see yeah. that today. It's one of those yeah. classic, um, George Clinton, <laughs> you know, things. And, you know, he has some yeah. amazing stories behind him, you know, working with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and a whole bunch of other, other acts as well. And he's, like you said, he, he, he must be the real deal because he's, his career has been long and it's been varied and he's not yeah. scared to jump into the, you know, into the, the red hot chili peppers world, the, you know, the big world of, of, of big stadium rock. And he's also not scared to, to jump into a small club and do his own shows and to his dedicated fans. So, you know, he's really, he runs the spectrum. So that to me, yeah. that would have been amazing. And it's great that he is a professional because you would hope he would be, but you could also just picture him being, you know, <laughs> that little bit yeah. crazy at times. But it's it. So that's that's great to hear. And and from there, I'm gonna I'm gonna swing the pivot <laughs> because I'm like I said, yep. I'm going chrono- chronologically a little bit a, a no. little bit here. But one one of the other ones that I that I found fascinating that you worked on, and I've got to make sure I'm I'm getting the chronological right. But is Rick Okasek. Who is, of course, the frontman from the Cars? So, an incredible band, obviously passed away. I have a real love of the Cars music, but I have a real love of Rick because he produced Weezer's first album, and I am an enormous Weezer fan. <laughs> Weezer are my so, are my Beatles, and so anything Rick, I want to know about. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, that's that's interesting. So. Again, uh, because I had a little age on me as an art director, most of them were in their 20s and I was about 35. You know, Rick Okasek was, uh, you know, he was kind of in my world of the, the cars. And the interesting thing also is at that time I lived on Irving Place in New York City and Rick and Paulina lived around the corner from me. And so oh, wow. I would see them walking, you know, with their kids out in the street. And so when that project came up, I had already become the design director for Columbia. So I said, oh, well, this one's my, you know, I get to take <laughs> every now and then. I mean, you really wanted to spread the wealth and give them to the art directors. But I thought, ah, I deserve this one. <laughs> and so I met Rick and he didn't 
he didn't have a lot of parameters except that he wanted to use his photos, these photos that he right. took. And they okay. were, they were interesting, they were interesting photos, but you know, they weren't strong enough to be like center stage. Here's this mm. one photo album cover. And so I thought a way of treating them by, you know, making them mono to do a tones and uh, kind of giving them a, a vintage look. And, and my most favorite part of that album package was if you look at the cover, you'll see the Columbia logo is it's that logo, particular logo is called the walking eye. The and wa- Columbia okay. had the walking eye. Um, because it was a, it was, it was sort of this marriage of Columbia Records and CBS music and CBS, the walking eye was their logo. And then there was right. the Columbia typography above it, but they hadn't used it in years. And uh, because I wanted this record to have this retro look, mm. I, Pulled the, I pulled the logo and I put it on the cover. And then because Sony is such a huge company, everything had to go look, be looked at by legal. So when it went down to legal, legal was like, what, what's this logo? You can't use this logo. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean? It's, it's Columbia. I mean, it is our logo. I mean, I know it hasn't been used for a while. It was like, Oh my God, you know, it was like such a huge issue. It went on for days and days. And uh, I was, I was embarrassed. I was going to be mortified if I had to tell Rick Ocasek, you know, well, we can't use this because some knob in the legal department. <laughs> and fortunately enough people got behind it where they were like, you know, okay, let her use the logo. And then people liked the logo so much, like it brought back good memories that then they just it. started using it again. Yeah. I so that's it. my real, that's my real success story with Rick's record. And I, uh, he was also, again, you know, kissing and t- I'll never tell you if they're assholes, but I will tell you if they're really lovely <laughs> people. And he, he was a very lovely person. Really. Oh, was, incredible. He was very gentle and, and soft spoken and really a very sweet man. I love it. I love it. And I love, I love yeah. that you put the logo on there because you mentioned with, with Henry Rollins, his love of Stax records and that's sort of a, a classic Stax. Exactly. Exactly. Sign. And, right. um, yep. you know, I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of a band called Big Star. I'm sure you know who Big Star are. Oh, sure. And, yeah. And, you know, like I, I love the fact that, that the label that they are, they are on and the record label and, and all the Ardent records, they would use the Ardent logo wherever they could like that and that they were associated with Stax. <laughs> so, right. um, right. you know, so that, that that's where my love of all of that comes from. But you then, you know, that's 1997. And then the same year you do Rick and then you also do Aerospace Nine Lives, which <laughs> couldn't really swing that, that, um, oh my God, to, to, to different, you know, ends of the spectrum. And I've spoken with a bunch of designers who have worked on Aerosmith albums over the years and they've got some hilarious stories about the band. So, I was wondering how your interaction with Aerosmith was. <laughs> well, okay, Josh. So let me let me say this: they are to me America's greatest rock and roll band. I am yes. America. Let me just make that clear because I do <laughs> think there are there are greater rock bands, but they're America's greatest rock band in that classic thing. And so yes. uh, I was very excited. I was very excited about the, uh, uh, having an opportunity to work with them. And the, the, the head of the, my department, Chris Ostopchuk, he specifically p- p- 
picked me to work right. with Aerosmith. So, so I was amazing. World, yes. Um, so I knew that we probably, as an internal art department, didn't really have the chops to give Aerosmith that full time attention and just what they needed. And so mm. we. Wendy Laster, who was their manager, and I spoke uh, about the designer Stefan Sagmeister, who I personally knew, I, a big fan of his work. And I thought, well, you know, if anybody could try and get something interesting out of Aerosmith, mm. it would be Stefan. I did. I had an idea that I really loved. Which was, I really wanted the photographer Cindy Sherman to, and she only shoots herself. That's, right. that's her thing. She, but she puts on costumes. And so I wanted Cindy Sherman to shoot herself as the members of Aerosmith. Because that, <laughs> you would, it just, I mean, it would have just elevated. I always felt Aerosmith. I mean, I know that their main driving audience are kind of a bunch of yahoos, but I always felt they had the, the ability to, to, you know, skew a little less dumb than they were. <laughs> oh, 100%. But, um, Joe Perry and yeah. Steven Tyler are amazing. They're amazing songwriter, songwriting partnership. I put them up there yeah. with, with Tom Petty as sort of that quintessential American rock band. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, although Tom, you know, he does have the heartbreakers, but so it is more of a band, but yeah, I, I completely agree with what you're saying about Aerosmith and, just being able to play with that Aerosmith logo, that was one of the logos that, you know, when you were young and you draw things, I draw that you logo You drew it everywhere. in your notebook, of course. <laughs> exactly, of course. exactly. And that on, and my, on my folders. Yeah, ACDC, <laughs> but that, that Aerosmith one, I'd get, I'd get black photos with, black folders with, um, with whiteout and I'd, I'd do the symbol in whiteout until I'd get it as close wow. to being readable nice. as possible. Yes. Yeah. So. So wow. anything Aerosmith. So I know you're a big fan. And so this yes. is the thing I really wanted to make sure you heard, which I found was really fascinating. So, um, I, you know, I love Steven Tyler. I love, you know, guys who look like girls, girly guys. The lips, was right? some, <laughs> yeah, the whole thing. Uh, so it was very fascinating to me, uh, the dynamic between Steven and Joe. And I think mm. they've known each other since high school. They but have, yes. Stephen, like I would, Stephen and I had the relationship. So I would go to Stephen with a Polaroid or a design or whatever. And mm. Stephen would look at it. But then he would never offer his opinion until he got assurance from Joe that it was cool. Right. <laughs> and okay. I thought, oh, wow, look at the that. The brain's Steven trust Tyler. is with Joe Perry. Yeah, 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 yeah looks up to Joe. Like, you know, you'd think, you know, Steve, you know, Joe's all, I mean, he's amazing, but he's just sort yeah. of always just looks ultra cool receding in the background and there's Steven. Like, yeah. but yeah, in the, in the, in the final analysis, Steven takes it to Joe and it has to pass Joe's, Joe's wow. <laughs> seal of approval. And I found Isn't... that really interesting and it made me like them both even more. Like, because <laughs> I, I didn't expect that dynamic. <laughs> well, one of the stories you should listen to the podcast episode we do with Hugh Syme because he oh, did. Okay. Oh, I know Hugh. I know Hugh. Yeah, you know Hugh. And he did get a grip, but he has this great story of he went, he went to meet with the band and he's walking through this hangar 
and there's this wall, this amazing wall of all these different collage colors. He goes, and it looked amazing, and I'm walking closer and closer to it, and then I realized it's an entire wall made up of women's panties and bras that that, that had been thrown <laughs> at them on stage and it had filled the entire wall. And obviously someone wow. had gone, what, what do we do with these? They just started stapling them to the wall and it, it created this huge collage. And I was like, that's so Eric's great. It just personifies them in so many ways. It's so great. But um, look, that's an amazing story. And, and I do love Aerosmith. And once again, we're going to swing that, that, um, uh, that, you know, that, can't even say the word, but we're 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 going to move away from the from the hard rock and go into another territory. You worked on sketches for my sweetheart, the drunk by Jeff Buckley. What what an amazing, what a sad but but amazing experience that must have been. Um, you know, obviously Jeff wasn't there to have artistic control. Um, how did, how did that play out? How, how did that all manifest itself? Well, uh, so I knew Jeff personally. Um, oh, wow. I, I was partners with a bunch of friends. Uh, my, uh, we opened a bar on 14th Street called Beauty Bar. And it was like a really raucous, fun bar. But Jeff would, go there, sit at the bar, and, like, read a book of poetry while everybody was getting drunk and stoned and, <laughs> you know, whatever. And and I used to tease him. I used to just tease him about it because it just would make me laugh. Like, mm. why would you come to this crazy place and then sit down and read a book of poetry? And, you know, we... And that was sort of as close a relationship as we had. He was very... You know, he was kind of too... He, he was, like, the too sensitive poetic type for me you know um but i'll never forget the day that um my boss walked into my office and said uh, jeff buckley is missing presumed drowned and i was like what i mean it just really really i i i know i you know i couldn't see myself but i know the blood drained from my face like that was just such a horrible and yet, like, perfect way for Jeff to leave this earth. You know, he was that person. Just um, like his father in many, many, yeah, many ways. I mean, in so, some, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. History but, repeats. Uh, but that voice, I mean, I love, oh. you know, me, uh, that was a, ve- it was just very special record. Mm. And I, and I saw he was an, really an incredible talent. And so what, you know, the record, it was tricky because it really wasn't finished. Uh, yes. I was dealing mostly with Jeff's mom. So that, you know, I mean, my God, the woman lost her son. I mean, she's yes. had a life, you know, pretty big tragic events. Of course. Yes. And so, you know, that you had to be very gentle there. Um, we had great, you know, we had access to Jeff's diary, you know, writings and Mary Sear, who's the photographer who sort of, you know, Jeff was sort of lucky to have this one person who was just always, but mm. you know, documenting documenting his life, which is Mary. So we had fo- interesting photographs, and um, that project, I my, you know, I'm on there as the art director, uh, but Julian Peplo, um, very talented designer who was at Sony at the time, he he pretty much did the design for that. 
um, because I knew he would be really respectful. And, um, but it was painful, that whole project, mm. A, because I, I really had a feeling that Jeff, he just really wouldn't have wanted the record to come out the way it was, like it, was, yes. it wasn't finished. Um, yes. So that always, you know, you said to me, you get a sense that I really, you know, have some sort of rapport or symbiosis, mm. symbiosis with the artist. And I, I do. And so that process was difficult to, first of all, to just grieve that he was no longer on this earth. And then to say, you know, do I, re- you know, do we really want to do this? It's like, I don't, you know, if, if Jeff had forethought and made a will, I know in that will he would have said, don't put that record out until yeah. I'm finished yeah. with it. Um, exactly. So it was a weird, it was a weird project that I, my name was on it, but honestly it was more, I did art directed in terms of guiding Mary, uh, mm. Jeff's mom, to, you know, through this process. But Julian really, he did the bulk of the design work. I, it was just, there was a lot of handholding, as you yeah. can imagine. I can imagine. And look, coming from the first album, which had, you know, to be, to be able to break through at that time when rock is dominating. I mean, it is the end of hair metal. It is now grunge. It is, it is, you're in that era and to become so well known with something that's so different. <laughs> yeah. And no, you're hit, right. You're, you're right. I owned it. I that's went and really bought it as soon as. As soon as I heard a few of the songs, I was like, that's, I mean, I remember the the radio station, they wouldn't just play one song off the album, they'd play a bunch. And yeah. people just fell in love and people, and you know, and then it, it brought his father's music back into the, the forefront as well, who had, you know, been famous years earlier, but, but obviously had died off a little bit. But it, it yeah. sort of, it brought that whole genre back and he did well, it. Well, it, every you know, now with, and then there are people, there, there are, yeah, I mean, well, I'll go. I'm, I'm obviously, I'm, I'm guessing I'm, uh, almost a couple of decades older than you, or definitely a decade and a half. But for me, that I'm in my forties. If that, if that helps. Yeah. Okay. There you go. I, ju- I just yep. turned sixty. So, okay. Well, I just turned forty-one. That, there you go. Okay. So that record for me, Josh, was Tracy Chapman. Right. I remember. Right. Yes. You know, it was all like about rock, and you know, and then, and then. Fast Car came on the radio, and I thought, what, oh, what is this? Yeah. This is, doesn't yeah. sound like anything yep. I've heard on the radio. And so Jeff Buckley, he he was in that vein where when yes. he came on, you're like, whoa, uh, this is quite a change. I was I was a very young music fan, so I remember Chasey Chapman, Chapman oh, okay. coming out. So Good. I I was in my – I was think I was seven or eight, and I was getting into music, then I was crazy about it. So – um, okay, cool. So, so, so I do, I do understand. And she changed the world. She changed the world in many, many ways for artists. So, um, yeah. incredible, incredible woman. But, uh, we digress. We, we, we've now yeah. discussed Aerosmith. We've discussed Jeff Buckley. Incredible. And I, I then wanted to jump to another Australian artist, which is Darren Hayes. And, and it's time to stop this episode. So you, dear listener, and I can decompress after running through Amy Mann, Rico Kasich from the cars, Aerosmith, Jeff Buckley, and just so many more. And yes, we picked the second part of our chat up with Gail discussing Darren Hayes, frontman from Australian act Savage Garden. And luckily for me, Gail was there when Savage Garden first hit the record label. So we get an insight to that as well. Vibe. Machine.